Hi everyone, I'm Riyad Alkyol and this is Dignified Resilience, a podcast on fresh narratives on confronting despair, alleviating distress, and forging ahead. In this podcast, we hear from people around the globe at all stages of life and variety of industries and learn how to channel dignified resilience to survive, feed the soul to heal, and connect with others through inspiring compassionate actions and behavior. At the same time, I aim to grow a global conversation that seeks to better acknowledge different sociocultural perspectives on meaningfully weathering life's adversities and achieving well-being. Here is a noble and humane invitation for surpassing our old selves by learning about and from other people's moving forces and limitations for successfully overcoming affliction and ache. Remember, we have different lives, distinct pathways, cultures, and contexts, but we can find common ground in supporting dignified resilience anywhere. So let's go then. Welcome to Dignified Resilience. I'm very excited to host two experts today um, on a conversation about different topics related to uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Southeast Europe, but hopefully it will uh, provide for a helpful and educational and informative conversation that is related um, in terms and context beyond this geographical um, context as well. Allow me to introduce my guest, uh, Catherine Baker, a lecturer in 20th century history at the University of Hull, um, a youth scholar whose research includes topics related to nationalism, ethnicity, and identity, connections with popular culture and the entertainment industry, international intervention, travel, migration, mobility, and other interesting ties in the former Yugoslavia and Southeast Europe. Uh, she'll bring that expertise to our conversation today, including her scholarly and theoretical work that will offer a distinct insight into how the region is configured by and through race, something that I wanted to talk about here for a long time. And she's also author of numerous academic papers and the book Race in the Yugoslav Region. And I'm equally excited to have another excellent scholar, Azra Hromadzic, with me today. Azra is a cultural anthropologist based in Syracuse University here in the United States at the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs. And her research uh, interests are in the anthropology of international policy in the context of state making in post war Bosnia and Herzegovina. Her book, Citizens of, uh, of an Empty Nation Youth and State Making in Post War Bosnia, uh, is an ethnographic investigation of the internationally directed post war international policies in this country. Azra also initiated a new project that ethnographically researches aging, care, and social services in the context of post war and post socialist Bosnia. She's currently working on an exciting thing, which she calls River and Citizenship in Bihać, focused on the Una River. We'll talk about all of this, but first I want to say welcome to Dignified Resilience. How are both of you today? Well, thank you for having us. Um, very excited to be here and to be, um, to be not only part of this conversation, but also to bring some of this Syracuse sunshine that so rarely happens <laughs> to, to, this, uh, to this podcast. So if sun is on my face, uh, please ignore it a little bit, um, but I'm enjoying every minute of it. Very excited to be here and um, happy to um, converse with Catherine. It's been a while, so um, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, and Catherine joins us from across the Atlantic. Welcome, Catherine. Absolutely, yeah. So when you've got Sinecure Sunshine, there will be a, a gradual diminishing of Yorkshire, 
Yorkshire sunshine while we're talking, I expect. But oh. I'm very excited to be here, and it's been too long since I was last talking to Azza. I'm excited to be talking to you, Riada, for the first time, and at least if we're doing everything virtually, we have more opportunities to connect across the Atlantic like this. Absolutely. So let's dive in. Um, I'll pose questions to you both, but of course, please free, feel free to chip in at any point. Catherine, let's start um, our chat with you. You write in your book that it is no longer possible and never should have been to contend that the Yugoslav region stands somehow outside race. And the question is, as you say, where it stands and why that has gone unspoken for so long. And just because we have audience that might be very familiar and very unfamiliar with this context, just so to tell them uh, in one sentence about the context which you have studied, as you say in that in your book, compared with ethnicity and religion, uh, which in many uh, other settings are intricately linked to race, race or the politics of racialization and whiteness, which constitute it is a rare, uh, rarely subject of the study of the Yugoslav region. Tell us, um, Catherine, how do you see and explain to us how has this Yugoslav region been um, as entangled in global raciality as any other part of the planet, in your opinion? That's a great question to start with. So let's go in at the deep end. So, yeah, what I mean by raciality really is the system of classifying humanity and classifying the globe and its territories into categories based on supposed racial difference. What we then call race and you know this is a system which has a history we can trace it back at least to the european colonization of the americas and the beginning of the atlantic slave trade we might well take it back even earlier than that we might well look at the ways in which you know systems of classifying human difference in the medieval period then got taken up adapted translated you know in that early modern period the 15th, 16th centuries when this system was beginning. So, you know, I've called it a system so far, but perhaps we ought to say multiple systems. The contents of each kind of set of racial categories and how people get racialized into them often differ very greatly across space and across time. You know, even sitting just in the UK talking to you in the US, you know, in each of the societies where we are right now, there's a different set of racial categories. In play. But all of these still sit and have sat within an underlying idea of a racial hierarchy, which has got blackness and African descent at the bottom, and which has got whiteness and European descent at the top. So, you know, this was a way of thinking which gave first religious and then secular and scientific legitimization to Europeans enslavement of Africans, their colonization of the Americas and of much of what is the rest much of the rest of what's now the global south, because of that legacy of violence and risk attraction. So talking about global raciality emphasizes this is a process that has entangled the whole planet, not even just societies we might think of as obviously multiracial because they were directly entangled in that history. So you know, this is what the philosopher Charles Mills, who sadly quite recently died, called global white supremacy. Scholars trying to research race in what we might call less obvious settings have done many things. They've looked at cultural representations like you know, textbooks, medical magazines, advertising. They've looked at interpersonal and intercultural encounters across racialized boundaries. You know, this is one reason that you know, scholars have been you know, so interested in the history of you know, Tito in Africa and socialist Yugoslavia's non-aligned connections. 
they've looked at the ways in which international relations themselves have actually operated as a, a racialized system that pulls every nation in the world into these hierarchies, even if where they actually belong or might belong to them is ambiguous and struggled over. And, you know, scholars have been doing all this from, you know, in settings ranging from Iceland to Ghana to Russia and the USSR and, you know, then East Central Europe. What would make us think then that the post-Yugoslav region is the only part of the world which has been completely insulated from all of these transnational world historical processes which have created what we now know today as race? And the traditional answer has always been, well, you know, this region and the rest of Central and Eastern Europe wasn't involved in European colonialism in the way that Western Europe was. In fact, of course, its people were having to struggle for independence against imperial powers, including one power which is often seen as non-European itself, the Ottoman Empire. Instead, the region's history is seen as being driven by ethno-political conflict and ethno-political difference. Moreover, of course, this is one of the regions which went through state socialism, which made its historical experience different to Western Europe's as well. So, you know, all of these factors have encouraged us, at least in, you know, the setting of the Anglophone Academy where I work, to think of a, a kind of post-colonial West of Europe, where race is salient, and a post-socialist East of Europe, where ethnicity mm -hmm. is salient. And one of the foundational um, ideas that really cut through that um, is what Sharad Chari and Catherine Verdery said more than 10 years ago now about post-coloniality and post-socialism in global history. And that's basically to say, well, you know, it's not the case we've got part of the world that was affected by, you know, the end of European empires in most of the globe and part of the world which is affected by the collapse of state socialism. You know, these were both, you know, these were both global processes. And, you know, we can look at post-coloniality in the former state socialist space. We can look at, you know, we can look at what were the effects of the collapse of state socialism in, you know, what one might have thought was the post-colonial world. And that one I think is the springboard, you know, for a lot of the thinking and theorizing that, you know, many, many people since then, including me, have been doing. And if the West had defined itself for so long against its own imagination of Orient, um, might Europe not have been constructed against the Balkans or Eastern Europe? Um, and, and if yes, what did that result in? And how did the Balkans themselves internalize that? This is a really good question as well, and that's actually, you know, been one that I've been dealing with, you know, right back to when I, right back to when I was a graduate student. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it was the, you know, that foundational literature on how Europe did construct each other, did construct itself in opposition to the Balkans. You know, really when I first encountered kind of post-colonial thought of any stripe, you know, I was part of that generation of grad students who was reading, you know, Maria Todorova, Imagining the Balkans, Desna Goldsworthy, Inventing Mauritania, Miller Tobacco Hayden's work. And, you know, to be honest, I think it is, you know, through having done that and, you know, through seeing the construction of the, the idea of Europe a very different way to what I would have been exposed to just as a, you know, an everyday Western European white Anglophone citizen at the turn of the millennium, you know, that then gave, you know, equipped me to 
you know, pay more attention to the, the kinds of ways that, you know, somebody like, you know, Stuart Hall or Paul Gilroy, those, you know, foundational figures in, you know, British and Black British cultural studies, you know, would also be talking about, um, you know, the politics of representation, exoticism, difference there. So, you know, at the same time as, you know, I was studying the politics of popular music in, in post-Yugoslav Croatia, first of all, encountering all of these questions coming up through, you know, the, the ethnomusicology and the ethnology of the Balkans. And, you know, then clearly, you know, as soon as, you know, as soon as you read someone, someone like Hall, you know, it, it opens your eyes, or it should, you know, as to all of the kinds of unspoken processes of representation, exoticism, etc., you know, which are go, you know, which are going on around you if, you know, you were situated where, where I was. And, you know, I then had the question ever since then, okay, well, are these just kind of parallels of each other, which, you know, is in itself a, you know, I don't want to discount that as a way of thinking because it's the way in which we recognize it, you know, processes that may actually be expressions of, you know, something deeper and even more structural than that. Are these just parallels which don't have anything to do with each other in a wider sense? Or, you know, is there a context where actually they could both be expressions of, you know, something else underlying that's going on? And it was so fascinating for me to read how you elaborated different processes of racialization and how the turn in the 2000s, as you write and elaborate, how studying ethnicity was, you know, became process of, so how ethnicity became process rather than being fixed groupness. Um, and, and that made me think in um, different, in new ways. And also how you explain post-Cold War Europe, for instance, which witnessed a new form of racism. So we know about biological racism, but then you elaborate cultural racism as well, and how those both biological and cultural racism were present in the formation of nations um, in ex-Yugoslavia, right? Exactly, and, and you know, here, you know, when we're talking about the, you know, the, you know, the foundation of national ideas, you know, here I'm very much making sense of, you know, what, you know, what I've read in the work of people like Thomas Lovlonginovic, Marius Tudor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then thinking, okay, well, you know, if that is, you know, if that was already part of these national projects, um, you know, Nevin Kolbartkin's work on, you know, the racial idea and Croatian nationalism, you know, between the world wars and, you know, then in the, the end of her, the, the fascist independent state of Croatia, for instance. Um, you know, if, you know, if that was already there, then that means that, you know, racism and the idea that race is salient or the idea of, you know, this, this hierarchy from whiteness at the top to blackness and the bottom, that can't just have been something that came into national consciousnesses the very first time, you know, suddenly overnight after state socialism had collapsed, or, you know, even in those years when state socialism was collapsing, and, you know, the, you know, the project of the, the so-called return to Europe was, was being developed, you know, one thing I really wanted to encourage more people to do, and, you know, I think this crystallized, you know, interest that actually, you know, 
many more scholars than me were all, you know already started you know already having and you know articulating but you know I really wanted to know more about you know what was going on for instance in you know things like the the everyday culture and the consumer culture of the perhaps Berglands for instance that you know that side of the German-speaking cultural area where you know where Croatia was part of where Rodina was part of um, Bosnia Herzegovina was made part of after after 1878 and you know that you know that itself has often been looked at as a Habsburg colonial project um you know what did things like you know the you know the culture of exploration mean um you know or the, the kind of commodity culture that you see in the you know that you see, you know that you see throughout the, the German speaking cultural area um you know when things like you know the you know, traveling human exhibitions or Wild West shows were, you know, coming through the Habsburg Empire. They, you know, they stopped off in the biggest cities. You know, what did people in Zagreb, the provincial capital, what it was at the time, know about that? How did, how did they respond to it? And, you know, I, you know, I myself, I'm, you know, I'm not a researcher of the Habsburg period. Um, but, you know, it is something that, you know, I feel like I need to know in order to be able to, make a a strong kind of theoretical argument about you know about where things are with race and racialization but you know i think what we you know what i was able to do was at least to kind of map out okay well actually why we you know why we need to know more about this and what kinds of lines we might follow even if myself mm -hmm. i'm not going to be the one to to answer them um i feel like you know half the book you know really is if we knew more about this, there are certain things that we could say with more clarity, and you know this is why it's important for us to to be able to say them. And it is so important because some of these myths or antemurale myth, for example, uh, which you also explained to Maria Todorova calls as one of the most important European mental maps, uh, we we see the echoes of that reverberating even today in the narratives of some politicians. The biological essentialism that you so well explained through, for example, Serbian national program uh, applied to others like uh, Bosnian Muslims, Bosniaks, Albanians. We hear the echoes of that today, but I was also very appreciative of how you mentioned and elaborated anti-Tsiganism in post-Yugoslavia. That is something that a lot of people don't consciously think about or don't question. And these are the sort of... <laughs> chakras that you open, horizons in new alleys that we need to uh, think about uh, and why we are we have not consciously thought uh, thought about it in terms of the otherness as well. So that leads us a little bit to present situation. Azra, let me turn to you. You've written in this solution with Dayton in Bosnia and Herzegovina that the problem with this ideology of good enough plurality, as you say, is that it takes ethnicity as an a priori organizing principle. So that that was really that that seems so important when we talk about this region to kind of deconstruct and talk about it. You say the system itself discourages cross-ethnic affiliation and cooperation among ordinary people. Instead, a new generation of Bosnian citizens was born and folded into this system, and most of them became habituated to it regardless of its dysfunctionality and absurdity. You recently returned from Bosnia, if I uh, if if I'm correct. Tell us your thoughts both on this 
idea of in or sustainability of Dayton Peace Accord as the country is going through the most serious political and security crisis since 95. And uh, what are your thoughts uh, regarding uh, regarding that? Oh, I have so many, but thank you for that, for the question and for a, a very complex introduction. Um, I uh, first of all, I, I know no no one is surprised by 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 the moment the moment. I mean, this kind of crisis was something that Dayton itself kind of set up to to happen uh, sooner or later. And obviously, Bosnia is not only in terms of racial racialization and racial systems, but in terms of geopolitics, part of larger uh, global maneuverings and and negotiations. So this uh, obviously this happening right now in the in in Bosnia is is linked to many other. Uh, waves that are happening um, globally. Um, what's interesting is that, um, you know, it, it, it's this kind of, um, I, I will say, kind of intimate and personal um, um, feeling of, of, of confusion to some extent, because obviously this kind of crisis couldn't articulate itself the way it has been articulating itself without the institutionalization of Dayton Peace Agreement that separated Bosnians and Herzegovinians who were produced during the war into these kind of ethnicities, a term that um, became um, a main term to, to, to think not only present situation, but also to think history, even though the term is relatively novel in the region in the sense that we use it today. Um, so that kind of uh, thinking about uh, relationship between people and territory was produced during the recent war. Obviously, ethnicity or some kind of form of groupness and identification oftentimes related to religious identity was, uh, you know, pre-existed this crisis, obviously, in the recent, most recent war, because if you look at the Turk, um, the Ottoman occupation, um, there was uh, also a way um, to collect taxes by thinking these groups as separate uh, ethno-religious entities. And they, again, to, to think hierarchy, they were not equally positioned in relation to the tax system, right? But this relationship, this kind of um, imagined pure relationship, direct relationship between ethnicity and territory is a relatively modern one. And this one clashes with kind of history in Bosnia in which people did commingle um, and mix to some extent. Obviously there were areas and there, was, there were certain kinds of urban rural dynamics in terms of ethnicity that could be mapped out. But this kind of absolute, clean uh, homogenization of territory in the name of ethnicity is relatively recent. And what Dayton did, it legitimized it, it politicized it, right? And it made it kind of commonsensical. So all that kind of led to this perpetual possibility of that being, again, further politicized for political gain. And what's happening now, you see that on the ground so well. And um, this is, again, another modern um, modern uh, political problem, right? This is not some kind of primordial ethnicity speaking, um, you know, in, in their archaic language of violence and, and separation and balkanization, right? But it's a very modern uh, power game and um, many of the main actors, political actors who are uh, threatening secession, such as Milrad Dodik, or kind of looking for other uh, political gains, such as Dragan Trovich and Ezek Begovic. Um, they're all um, kind of utilizing, they're repoliticizing again ethnicity to meet these goals and in the process to uh, mask really all sorts of uh, accusations of, of corruption and dissatisfaction. Um, that the population on the ground is feeling. So they're doing this and they're mobilizing this. And I was, I was just there. I happened to be there during the, um, you know, the main Orthodox um, holiday and during the celebration of 
um, the, the Christmas and then during the celebration of the um, illegal uh, the day of Republika Srpska. And it was amazing to see how the media, that's, uh, the, the, the um, Milorad Dodik controlled media um, has been um, utilizing these events to create a certain kind of feeling, right? To, to kind of tap into that um, already late date and laid out uh, legitimized institutionalized divisions and to ignite certain kinds of feelings and structures of feelings that then the Bosniak side and media ended up responding to. And you felt this kind of deepening mistrust that these media, um, uh, media houses were creating and people started to feel more and more uncertain. At the same time, while in, on, on the ground, in terms in the ordinary, so-called ordinary spaces, they continue to exchange, help each other, commute to um, to all these places. I mean, I had an, an I have an anecdote. You know, in the in the midst of this heightened kind of distrust, um, you know, we need needed somebody to help us get something to Benilukas. It was so quickly organized. People said, "Oh, no problem, we'll do that." People continue to 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 live their lives and exchange exchange favors and and um, you know engage in common space and and and. Um, helping each other. So you have this really strong discrepancy between this media uh, crazy and, and control of that media and um, the way it seeps into everyday life and then people carrying on um, their own kind of uh, ways to survive ba uh, basically uh, very difficult, uh, not only COVID produced, but economically uh, devastated con uh, situation in which um, many of them see um, certain kinds of detachment from the state, uh, political and and uh, physical, as the way the only way out. So you have it's it's complicated, and these two things coexist. Mm -hmm. So it's not like one is a pretend, one is a pretend. You know, we are pretending to to help each other out, or that you know we are pretending not to trust each other. They're coexisting equal. I think we should take them as equally valued, um, and that's what complexity of life in any context, including the Balkan ones, one, um, you know, suggests that none of this is a, a performance, I would say, or all of it is performance to some extent, but none of it is more true than the other. Um, and I think that's, that's why it, it seems so um, hard to decipher what's really happening. Um, I don't know if I really answered your question, but yeah, um, I mean, obviously, it's complicated, because situation is still ongoing. And there are a lot of as you said, that's a really good point. The, the, the dynamic, the interactive dynamic of things feeding each other. Uh, and, and, but one thing that certainly is a result of such atmosphere is, uh, besides that fear and mistrust, is just a huge youth, I mean, emigration from the country that you have been working on for, for years now. It continues to grow due to both economical and political uncertainties. And you wrote a book, Citizens of an Empty Nation. Uh, uh, tell us, please briefly, I mean, you did kind of address a little bit this, but just elaborate just a little bit more this empty nation um, term that you write of. And also, I absolutely could almost relate to it because I returned to Bosnia from 
uh, United States where I spent seven years and I then spent three years in Bosnia um, and then I had to leave again because um, I just felt that the nepotism and corruption were suffocating me but um, just not I thought that this resonates with youth not just in Bosnia but also in a lot of different countries within the Middle East region as well and when you say in your uh, I witnessed Bosnian youth existing in kind of hibernation or a state of detachment from official politics um, can you tell us a little bit about your um, observations from from studying it um sure well I'm, I'm happy to do so and when i use this notion of empty nation um i you know i i use it in a way in, in which it circulates in the west especially in the us as a nation state right i'm talking more i would say perhaps about uh, emptying of the state itself of its citizens and by that i mean real people people made from um bones and blood <laughs> right uh, who are uh in that sense, protesting this empty state that's suffocating them as anything but ethnically conceived citizens. So Dayton was set up in a sense that you are um, you only are politically um, counted or politically heard, or you have a, a political grammar to articulate your desires only through these ethnic uh, matrices. Um, any other type of um, expression is discouraged, really. I mean, this is how constitutional uh, systems of democracy work, that you know, each uh, group conceived as this ethnic group is represented by its own ethnic representatives that make sure that the needs of that population are met. Any kind of inter-ethnic or trans-ethnic um, uh, type of political um, project is discouraged by this. Um, however, I mean, we have instances of a slippage. For example, our party, Nasha Stranka, right now has the governor in Sarajevo, right? So the canton Sarajevo, um, who, and this party is trying to reach across these ethnic um, distinctions. And these are really hard politically to achieve, these kind of trans-ethnic coalitions. Um, so when you have that kind of system, obviously any kind of um, desire or any kind of political expression on the trans or um, um, certain kind of identification above these ethnic groups is made almost impossible. It doesn't have its own grammar. It's really, and many people find that suffocating. Many people find also suffocating, you know, the effect all this has, this kind of extreme bureaucracy that safeguards this kind of uh, program and process of um, extreme ethnicization that has 13 levels of governance in some instances. Many people, uh, that's prone to, as you talked about a second ago, extreme corruption and nepotism and all sorts of other things and use of, of um, what in the region we call VESA or, or um, relationships and client. And, and this is not only about you know, being a Balkan pro problem, this is a problem of this bureaucracy and problem of neoliberal kind of um, restructurings that favor also this kind of flexibility. So I don't want to blame socialism on this. It's really a modern product of um, you know, the Dayton plus uh, neoliberal uh, kind of capitalist oriented uh, way of thinking. Uh, how to maneuver economic space. So all that is creating a very dysfunctional state. Um, and uh, many people feel that, I, as one student told me when I taught there in Fulbright in 2017, she said, Professor, I will try to stay. And the fact that people have to work really hard to try to stay in they, their country is extremely telling. Um, so what they many of them end up doing 
because they they feel disillusioned by um, you know 25 years of this perpetual kind of lack of opportunity. Um, they they feel um, they they are almost detaching from the political present, and they um, some of them are activists, some of them are involved, but many of them are feeling that um, here and now they're preparing themselves for the future elsewhere. So the most popular thing to do is to go to medical uh, high school um, and study German and obtain B plus, um, B2 level of German expertise and then um, try to get in the next bus um, to, to go to Germany. So right now there is this space of hibernation when one is accumulating necessary skills in order to be a democratic citizen elsewhere. And if you're not, what's interesting about this process for many young people is that many of them are are feeling almost like they morally are failing if they're not trying to do so like it's becoming not a trendy thing to try to stay but rather it's expected that you have a desire to leave um some of them again again push against this so what's happening is that something that i uh, talked about and envisioned abstractly theoretically as an empty state or an empty nation state because the state in itself, the way it's structured, is discouraging any kind of um, overarching right, citizenship, or it, it's actually leaving people at that sub-state level um, of citizenship. Right? That that kind of state that discourages history of coexistence, history of socialism. No one study, you know, socialist coexistence. No one even studies that in the region in, in Bosnia anymore. Um, they don't understand it. They don't have grammar. They are not taught. They don't understand that history. Um, and I have an anecdote of that, that that also shows that that kind of state that's bureaucratically massive, however, it's discouraging citizen identification at the state level is at the same time becoming literally emptied out of people. And I heard some projections that you know Bosnia that has what between two and around two and a half million people now, that's what I heard the latest, uh, the latest is going to have 1.7 million in, in, in uh, 20 years. Um, so we are, we, this kind of massive emptying is kind of um, almost a, an ironic, I would say, perhaps from some points of view, a sad um, articulation and reflection of this theoretical emptiness that I was trying to, to capture in the book itself. That's, I mean, so many things come to my mind. Um, I was thinking of so many people who want to leave then I was also thinking about returnees who, as an act of almost resistance and genocide survivors, want to stay in Republika Srpska and the kind of resilience, extra resilience that they have to show to be able to stay. A lot of them, some of them I've read, end up leaving again after having returned from Srebrenica for all sorts of economic or other reasons as well. So the it's just so profoundly sad that a lot of people who didn't or haven't had to leave or didn't want to leave or that trend of I want to try to stay and now as you describe uh, the reverse and the way that that is being abused by politicians uh, to 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 just perpetuate um, these sort of harmful theories uh, about what they want to achieve in their political goals. Speaking of migrations, Catherine, 
you write that after 9-11, uh, the European Union migration and that security nexus, as you say, accelerated into defending Europe from terrorism, but also unregulated immigration at once. So, uh, and that's refugee crisis that we know from 2015 and 16 was also an intensific intensification um, of, of those existing patterns and policies as you elaborate so well, but then also uh, a new things an unexpected, not the unexpected equivalent of the natural disaster to which many Europeans likened it. So my question to you is, what do you think? Are things getting worse? What are the discourses with which politicians across Europe rejected uh, large numbers of Muslim refugees in their countries, even though we know, according to international law, you know, it shouldn't have been that. We have seen a lot of uh, reports from Croatian, Hungarian border, Croatian, Bosnian border as well. How do you see that from this perspective now? And are things getting worse or not? Yeah, I think they are getting worse. And, you know, I mean, partly they're getting worse because they've been allowed to go on for so long now. If we're talking, if we're talking about discourses, you know, one of the one of the really big discourses in play is, you know, all of these variations on the anti-morale myth that we already talked about. Um, you know, that idea of, you know, a particular part of Europe being essentially on the, the front line against, you know, some sort of Islamic invasion. And, you know, that is, you know, it is so, you know, it's so present in, you know many nationalisms throughout not just the Balkans, not just Central Europe, you know, it's there in, you know, Spanish nationalism as well with the myth of the Reconquista, for instance. Um, so, you know, it's got a lot, a lot of cultural touchstones, but, you know, it is available to get, you know, reactivated and reinterpreted and reappropriated again and again. And, you know, Ivan Sholovich and Ivo Zhanec, you know, both showed this so well when they were writing about political culture in the, in the 1990s in, in Serbia and Croatia, for instance. Um, but, you know, it is, you know, really still implicitly appealed to, I think, in a lot of the, the, the gendered and racialized security narratives, you know, which get elaborated about the, the Balkan routes. Um, you know, it is, you know, appealed to, you know, explicitly as as well as implicitly by, you know, leaders such as Orban, for instance, in Hungary. Um, you know, it's something which the, you know, the, the transnational and increasingly networked far right, you know, has been fascinated by for, for years and years and years. And, you know, I mean, you see, you know, we, we see this in the, you know, the historical mythology that's, you know, both the, you know, both the Oslo Utoya attacks and the Christchurch attack were informed by, but, you know, there is a, you know, there is a discursive continuum, I think, you know, between, you know, historical narratives which gets, you know, reactivated in mainstream politics and, you know, historical narratives that get, react, you know, that get picked up on, you know, that, that more extreme side of things. Um, but, you know, as well as discourses, obviously, you know, we're talking about, you know, material structures and practices and, you know, the fact that things have been allowed to go on for so long like this now, you know, it means there's been a, a multi-year institutionalization of pushbacks by, by border police. You know, there's been, you know, an, an escalating culture of, you know, police harassment of solidarity activists and, 
you know, that of course sits in a wider context of the profession of, you know, civil society, political agency and protest. And, you know, as we all know much more than me about how that's felt at an everyday level in Bosnia. But it's not just Bosnia where, where it's getting worse, and it's not just the Balkans where it's getting worse. Um, you know, we've got a government in the UK right now which wants its own maritime pushback policy in the Channel, which Australia has had since 2013. When boats carrying migrants get into trouble in the Channel, it wants to turn them back and let the central authorities deal with them, rather than actually, you know, getting off and rescuing them, which under the international law of the sea are meant to do. When migrants have landed, they put hundreds of them in disused military barracks in Kent, and, you know, of course, it being 2020, 2021, many of them caught COVID. Now what it wants to do is detain every single, or rather, you know, all male migrants who cross the channel. And we get this endless barrage of rhetoric coming in from government and right-wing media in tandem, delegitimizing the idea that the state should do a single thing to let migrants and refugees live in good health and dignity. So, you know, okay, we, we might be talking about a, a greater level of state capacity in the UK context compared to the Bosnian one, but, you know, these, these aren't post-socialist politics in terms of it getting worse, so much as from being, you know, pan-European and pan-global north policies, which it then becomes very difficult for states on the peripheries of Europe to deviate from, you know, even if there was the, you know, the political will among those elites to, to do that. And I'm so excited to hear from Azra because she studied the reception of migrants in Bihać, but I just want to thank you, Catherine, for mentioning that far-right narratives and the way that they're appropriating these um, theses and the echoes of grand replacement theory, which reverberates so so loudly today um, and openly, demographic summit from Budapest uh, in September last year, where I thought it was, I mean, where, where Milorad Dodik said, we have to think about demographic values of Europe, not just economic. And in the couple of decades, will Europe, if we continue like this, Europeans will not live here, or will Europeans live here? And so that idea of who are the Europeans that he's alluding to, and uh, the support that he's finding while tapping into the populist, the narratives of the populist leaders like Viktor Orban or Yanis Yansha or others who might be less open about it. So I appreciate that you mentioned that because that global uh, narrative is very important when we study and when we think about this local context. So Azra, uh, please, can you tell us what have you found about the reception of migrants in the region from your studies in Bihać particularly? Uh, sure, I mean, I'm not, uh, unlike um, Catherine, who, who, who definitely studied migration and mobility for a while, I never, uh, claim that kind of expertise and and um, I would say that uh, migration kind of happened to me the way that uh, field work usually happens to an ethnographer. I was in uh, Bihać when um, Bihać became um, one of the most uh, visible uh, places where my, um, on, on the on the Balkan mi migrant route through its um, geography and its proximity to the Croatian that is EU border. And um, honestly, that was in so many ways overwhelming um, to be to witness that. And at the time when we uh, 
we just talked, I just talked about that a second ago that, you know, we were witnessing this massive protest, which is people leaving the country, which is the biggest protest that happened in Bosnia in the last decade, actually youth picking up and leaving. And as one person said, and nobody's crying. And that, that ties also into your, um, you know, discussion about uh, returnees um, and kind of returnees living again. And this is a very transgenerational uh, navigation and, and um, kind of internal familiar dialogue asking who is leaving, who is going to leave, who is going to stay. There's a lot of, um, I think that there's a lot that we need to unpack um, by thinking about our families. And, and by that, I mean our families as a conceptual tool, um, not necessarily individual families. But to go back to migration, I mean, I was obviously like many other people, um, you know, overwhelmed by so many um, changes that were happening in the region and the, the production of these kinds of spaces in the world in which different populations come to commingle, share certain kinds of exclusions, certain kinds of um, politics of uh, and histories of violence, and end up coexisting in, in an uneasy way, in a way that is so complicated because there is so much of recognition and solidarity and certain kind of identification due to one's own displacement, not only in place, but in kind of history, in identity. So you don't necessarily have to leave to be displaced. That's how many people were feeling there. Yeah, we left for Germany. We came back during the Bosnia, after the Bosnian war. Now uh, migrants are coming uh, with their own personal histories. We are not really interested in their personal histories, but we are interested in their collective sufferings. I haven't heard much interest in individual stories and histories of the mi migrants, rather they, um, actually were articulated and seen by the local population as this sea of humanity, sea of suffering humanity. And we know something, local people would say, we know something about suffering. So there was this kind of constant dance between inclusion, recognition of suffering, especially this um, suffering based on displacement due to poverty or um, you know, violent conflict. At the same time as these formations of racial hierarchy of othering, have been, um, you know, have, have articulated themselves in a way that many people for the first time um, kind of had to engage with somebody who was racially constructed as other due to superficial traits such as skin color, right? And that then actually mapped in, uh, itself on, onto this local semi-invisible history of uh, anti-Roma sentiment when many Roma and the people on the move coming from the Middle East and Northern Africa looked like Roma. So there was all this articulation of also a kind of racial um, navigation um, and then religious kind of religious affiliation, um, you know, um, kind of recognition of sameness as well as extreme difference too, right? Um, there was introduction of certain kind of also socialist non-aligned discussion in all this. So it was a very complex space, but it was also to me what was really interesting and what many people were not recognizing. So there, what, what the media was covering the most was how migrants were mistreated um, or uh, by, by the local population. There was very little um, of actually this other side that I was trying to show in my, um, not, not to negate uh, racist uh, existence of racism on the ground, but also to complicate um, the, the, the context in which people really coexisted in public spaces. Uh, Bihać was one of a few places where you really could see, unlike Croatia or some other places in Europe, you could see migrants really on the, um, on, on the streets and uh, in public spaces. And um, so this kind of proximity created all sorts of 
as I said, solidarities, but, but also my recognition of the lack of um, framework of, again, grammar of academic, academic capability at this point to think about these histories together. I was not sure if thinking post-coloniality was enough, if that language was uh, fitable, I'm making up English language words now, if it could fit this situation. I felt that there, there were people on the ground were articulating certain kind of geopolitics that I didn't know theoretically we had language for. And so they would talk about us becoming Gaza together, migrants and us together are becoming European Gaza. And you know, it was curious to think what does European Gaza stand for, right? Um, so this kind of being under siege in a, in a sense, and people would say all of us are in it together, realizing that we, not all of us are equally suffering because we, you know, again, we don't have the same passports, we don't have the same kind of um, situation right now on the ground. So there were so many articulations of identification, of suffering, of camaraderie, as well as exclusion and racism and violence that coexisted in this space. Um, and, you know, this is not the only space we can look at uh, Mexican-US border and find many places like that. But I think we don't have an apparatus, we don't have academic language to really capture these complexities yet. I think we are still stuck in some kind of, you know, I don't know, postmodern language that, you know, looks at, at um, I would say, um, interesting uh, zones of gray and messiness, but I don't know if it really can help us think about, uh, help our thinking um, yet at least, um, you know, how, how to make sense of these new formations on the ground and new articulations of sameness, sameness and exclusion um, uh, without how to look at this entanglement um, without, again, um, creating language of ethnicity, religion, um, border. Um, you know, I feel that we are reinserting certain kinds of categories onto new formations we don't have language for. And it's, I'm, I'm so grateful for the time that you two take to come here and share this expertise. And I hope that the listeners and viewers will think about it and that it will encourage them to read more about it in, in, because these are such complex things and we live them actually a lot of people live them without being conscious of it and i specifically want to also refer to something that thanks to your scholarship i started more consciously thinking about azra and that is that um the idea of challenging the representation of ethnically divided cities and i would like that if you could briefly because it's fascinating tell us your work about moster gymnasium but i appreciate it the way that you made me want to learn more about you, you mentioned Beirut, Jerusalem, uh, and all sorts of these cities and how we are maybe sometimes falling into traps and we need scholarship that research that provides different kind of insight into these sort of cities. Could you tell us a little bit about your work on Mostar Gymnasium yes, High School? Sure, absolutely. And, and I'll say that you know, um, I'm so glad that you, that you found that useful to think with this kind of critique of the ways in which we establish, again, sameness or, or comparison, right? Something that social science really likes is the notion of comparing things. And what constitutes comparison usually is some kind of idea about place or the way that place um, gets to be known and then kind of cemented in the knowledge production. So if, if I wanted as a um, dissertation writing a person to write about Bosnia in, in uh, 2000, it would be really 
really hard for me to get funded unless I did post-war something ethnicity related peace building reconciliation. I was ideally positioned to study that. If I tried to get grants to study post-socialist formations or to study what I study now, which is kind of ecology and riverine citizenship, I probably wouldn't get funded because that was not seen as valid knowledge. So valid knowledge about certain places keeps these places in, in space of, I will call it now, maybe potentially possibly intellectual suffocation, when we end up only reproducing certain kinds of categories to capture life in certain kinds of places. So you will have in many political science, international relations classes, you would have um, the deal with post-war reconstruction, you will have a week on uh, or two weeks on Palestine and Israel, you will have two weeks on Rwanda, you will have two weeks maybe in East Timor and uh, Northern Ireland, these kinds of sequences, and then Bosnia, obviously, these kinds of sequences, I'm not saying that there is no certain kind of thing to gain from thinking about these places in, um, in relation. However, the fact that these are now seen as established sequences are actually really limiting our way we think about sociality, we think about politics, we think about, they become static things, kind of, oh, do your case study on, on Bosnia about deeply, something we call deeply divided society, which when I mentioned that and translate to people in Mostar, they would say, what does that mean? <laughs> um, I mean, they are aware of their physical um, division now, they're aware of the fact that uh, the, you know, the politics is uh, uh, deeply dysfunctional, but at the same time, um, I found these pockets, not because I want to celebrate them, I don't want to romanticize them, even though I think sometimes romanticization is not as bad as scholarship tends to see it, um, because we are very suspicious like, as you know, Western scholars of romantic, which is really interesting to me, but that's another topic. So you know, I wanted to see what really happens in these spaces that are simultaneously kind of divided and united according to models that were some, somewhat uh, produced through local histories and divisions and somewhat um, imposed onto people and places and structures. And I wanted to see, my question was, uh, what does how, what does it mean to go to school, to this first reunited school in Bosnia and Herzegovina, which was officially reunited in 2004, um, and it was reunited um, with, a, with a hope. Genesia Master was the first school that was, um, uh, during the war, was divided into two separate schools, and then after the war, it was the first school that there was a push to reunite it because it was seen as a symbolic space. If Mostar can have a school where Muslims and Croats can go together, then maybe there's hope for Mostar in the country. This is how it was symbolically presented by those um, who were overviewing uh, integration. However, this integration, imagined as absolute integration, couldn't escape Dayton um, again, Cage, and Dayton Cage says, well, you know, representatives have right to protect their vital national interests, which are ethnic interests. So in the name of integration, they pushed, the international community pushed some uh, for something that actually already created an obstacle for in the, in the way it created the country. So they were saying, we want you united. However, all the structures suggest that maybe you shouldn't be. <laughs> So what happened is that they created this really unique school that many people are extremely now um, critical of. And in that school, um, the school was administratively united. It had one um, principal, one vice principal, one person um, responsible for finances and budget. 
On the other hand, it had separate curricula. So the students were at school at the same time, much better than in many other divided, fully divided schools when they go in different shifts. But they were actually organized within this united school. They were actually spatially organized, kind of, uh, sep they were separated constantly through space. So you had one so-called federal uh, classroom, meaning mostly Bosniak students in um, first, and then you would have Croat classroom next to it, and then you would have Bosniak once again. So there was this equilibrium, absolute symmetry that was trying to accomplish certain kind of equality and inclusion, but ended up constantly through space without need to articulate anything, reproducing these divisions and exclusions. So this was much better in so many ways than fully divided schools, but at the same time in the space of reunification, it produces again, um, um, distinction and separation. The only place where that failed was in the only space in which international community did not try to do it, which is the school bathrooms, where I never anticipated doing ethnography. No one teaches you how to do ethnography in the bathroom. It's it's little, it's interesting. There are students from both sides, so-called both sides, but that's how people on the ground talk about it. Um, which side are you from? They don't have to articulate ethnicity. It's um, so they um, they came together and smoked together and they flirted together up to a point. Um, they explored um, this distinction and difference between them that was created um, through the war and they, they would cross, cross over then pull back. It was a very dynamic space, but it was the only space where no one tried to bring them together, where they came together and realized and learned about each other. And then when there was a recent two or three years ago study that tried to see how, uh, how uh, Mostar youth feel about the other ethnic group, uh, students who went to this school actually um, were higher in their tolerance than the schools that were fully divided. So yes, this is this functional school. There's so many problems with it. It's just like the Bosnian state in the name of integration. It reproduces segregation. It um, you know, tries to not name togetherness. And in that space, it reproduces ethnicity all the time, uh, but by not naming it. Um, however, um, at the same time, this exposure and being together, it still shifted something. And I don't want, I, something about subjectivity did shift. Um, and they were, they, they, there, were, there were moments of interaction that produced something, some, something that elsewhere they wouldn't do. Was it ideal not? That's why I borrowing uh, from Fiske called this weak power, where they created these subjectivities that were not enough to change the structure itself, mm -hmm. but it changed their own sensibility. And, um, and it, in, in a sense, that's why I'm, you know, it's so easy to critique it, uh, this kind of monster of, of a unification. At the same time, it had some effects on, um, on youth that ended up going to the school and that were constantly kind of pulled between these spaces of integration and segregation. So I don't know if I really that's um, explained that. Of course, I mean, that different sciences, we know from socio sociology and that that context is so important in potentially helping with prejudice, with biases that we have and how important it is to facilitate just getting to know or being in contact with somebody. So I'm not surprised, but I am, uh, I'm not surprised by the potential success of it, but of course I am not surprised also by how limited is the 
in a limited way we tap into it of course because of all the lim other limitations of that that you addressed uh sadly and, and sadly because you know everything beyond the school is fully segregated so it's not like when you leave the school then you can coexist in other spaces i mean this was the only place in the I city see. almost there were two or three other but um so that you know it's limited but it's something and i don't want somebody who is just easily because the the you know powers who that insisted on this kind of unification uh, have been heavily critiqued by pretty much everything everyone um but I, I i agree with many of these critiques at the same time i think we should recognize that something was produced it was not ideal but um definitely for those interested in these kinds of transethnic identifications recognitions um uh, abilities to um understand um common uh, his shared history and predicament um, something shifted in these students, and I think that should be recognized. And I'm so curious now whether how would how does it change even in in different contexts? For example, if so we have Srebrenica, which is not the same example, but there we have, if I'm not wrong, and correct me if I'm wrong, we have also Bosnia kids who go to school, but they cannot even learn their language. They are i'm not going to say forced but even that interaction is happening in a very unhealthy setting so i wonder whether for example setting like mostar because of whether the dynamic is different there and how different is it for potentially in mostar or banya luka or yaitse or priedor um, and and that research would be so important if there are enough scholars like yourself who are willing to go across the usual narratives. So that research is very exciting for me, but it also I'm very curious about what's happening in different uh, contexts like Beirut or Jerusalem. And I did bookmark, there is one, you edited, I think, one special issue. I forgot what was the name of the academic journal, but I did download it. It specifically talks about the ethnically divided cities, right? It's mostly Boston, Mostar, a place in society. I think that's the one okay. and that I didn't, I was, a, I think that's the, the one you're referring to. And I was, I didn't edit it, but I was kind of um, one, of, I, there were two of us who were kind of commentators for the whole issue. And it was specifically engaged with Mostar, but I did, I mean, I think, you know, again, I think some things can be learned from comparison. It shouldn't be an easy one. I just critiqued these kinds of, you know, um, easy comparisons. But I did spend uh, two months in a Northern Ireland in a, uh, their second so-called integrated or shared school, um, which had, you know, some similarities and many, many differences. Um, and then in Bosnia, I went to Bosnsky Petrovac, which mm. is in, um, you know, in, in, the, in part of Can uh, Canton 10. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, where actually international community was not present mm -hmm. and where Serb children mm -hmm. uh, returned to uh, Petrovac and then went to school together in the same classrooms with uh, Bosnia kids who were the dominant um, uh, group. Again, I'm reinserting these categories know, that I'm yeah. so heavily critique, but I, you know, we don't have language almost. And that was very telling and uh, in so many ways different. Um, and you know the the again um, commonalities and commonalities in terms of how they were taught prior to that moment when they returned and who knew what history. Mm. So the Serb returnees knew a lot about uh, Serbian uprisings. Bosnian kids had no idea about them, but they knew a lot about Ottomans. No one knew anything about socialism. Mm -hmm. 
And when I was part of one group um, project um, in Bihar years later, uh, when we took students from a local um, university to meet with the former workers at the industrial giant, socialist industrial giant Computex, who are now people in their 70s, mm-hmm. who were telling them their experiences of working in this factory that was uh, extremely successful and it had its own ambulance, its own urgent care, its own daycare, its own, it was a life in itself kind of, right? All encompassing type of socialist factory. They, they understood the, stood the words, the students understood the words that these people were saying. They had no context at all to understand what they were talking about because they, this is not taught. And I think this is more important possibly to talk about now in terms of thinking about Bosnia than to talk about um, how many Serbs and how many Croats. It's about really certain kinds of historical legacies that are totally erased. Um, certain kind of socialist and post-socialist articulations that are totally invisible because people are not asking questions about them, but impact very much in which the ways in which generations um, kind of um, engage with or disengage with one another. I couldn't believe this moment of failed grammar uh, when I recognized it. It was it was somebody telling a story in a language you understand and you have no context to understand the point that person is trying to make or the world is trying to share with you. And you're in the same physical space. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was very telling. And that's why I think it not only about the Balkans, but about so many other places, I'm wondering, you know, what kind of stories would we prefer to tell? Um, what kind of stories are we um, kind of allowed to tell due to our grant um, agencies, due to what other people, what are the gatekeeping concepts um, related to certain kinds of spaces um, that make other, other ways of thinking and talking about it um, kind of discouraged or, or invisible. So for example, think about American nationalism today and about how people are talking about white nationalism. And they think many of my uh, colleagues and students, they, they don't think they can learn anything from um, you know, Balkan nationalisms or from nationalisms elsewhere in Eastern Europe, just because that's a different kind of nationalism. And I think that's a problem, these kinds of disconnect. This is not seen as a part of the same narrative, but divided cities are part of the same narrative. Um, similar with Catherine's work and race and uh, thinking race, right, from this particular vantage point. Um, if she were uh, to, if she were writing about this from Africa or from North America, probably her readership would be much, much bigger. Writing about this from a particular point, such as the Balkans, it's just not part of the Balkan narrative, right? I mean, we Balkan scholars couldn't wait for her to publish this, like, oh, this is exciting. But then how far it it, it, it um, you know, how, what kind of effect it has, it's kind of disconnected for the larger discussion about, you know, race that, that's, that's being done. And to me, that's very problematic, um, how we think these places and why we constantly come back to the same. I cannot, that's why I'm doing a college, I just cannot think about, I cannot talk about ethnicity anymore, honestly, just because it's so subtle. It's important, but there's so much more. And and Catherine does also talk about something which is fascinating, and you address it elsewhere about the diasporas from the ex-Yugoslav region. That's and, and just the difference, for example, that I was I thought was fascinating about the diaspora in Australia and United States, but also how it's very dynamic uh, and how a single event can shift things in a particular direction and then something else happens and then it goes elsewhere. But of course, I think it's always important to talk about 
any group as not a homogeneous group. And so different people will aim to, sh to identify with a certain narrative. One thing that I also thought was so commendable for Catherine while I was reading her work, another thing is, and, and which is tied to that, your new research uh, on positionality, identification, and, and field research. I think I was really trying to, to think, and I don't recall, besides your book, Catherine, that, well, I don't want to be unfair to other scholars that, that I read about, but when you write in your book, you said so clearly, I'm among the scholars, I quote you, I'm among the scholars whose ethnic heritage is not linked to the region and who often benefit from initial presumptions of objectivity because they are outside the ethnopolitical and ideological communist against nationalist biases of which scholars in and connected to the region are most more easily accused. Although British nationality is no guarantee of objectivity when British scholars capacity to pick a Southeast European ethnonational claim to champion uncritically while denigrating its rivals. Thank you. I, I really wanted to, to say thank you because you added also, if I strive for objectivity in terms of avoiding the moral equivalency of relativism while being equally critical of each post-Yugoslav national position, where necessary, I should be just as critical of my own national position using tools I first learned to develop by applying them to countries that were not my own. Thank you. That is because I, I have been in situations where it, I felt quite the opposite and where I have been questioning myself and my reaction and have often doubted and had and kept myself quiet only thanks to different friends and people who have voiced this out loud have I started to think that maybe I'm not I'm not gonna say crazy but that there is a discrepancy and asymmetry of power in situations so I want to ask you both about your research. What have you been finding? What have you been focusing on besides thanking you for out loud uh, stating that in your book? Yeah, I mean, well, well, thank you. I mean, I think, you know, maybe this is less a new research strand, you know, more something which I've always been trying to work through, but, you know, hopefully get, you know, better at actually, you know, putting into words and making visible and, you know, identifying outright, you know, something which, you know, we are, from wherever we're situated, I guess, all kind of aware of, even if, you know, e you know, even we haven't always been capable of naming it before. Um, and, you know, that, you know, that passage you picked out about, okay, you know, I feel a responsibility to be equally as critical of, you know, the, the nationalisms, historical analysis, etc. you know, which I, um, you know, directly part of. Um, you know, that again, I think, goes right back to, you know, when, you know, when, when I was a grad student just emerging as a researcher. And, you know, this was the, you know, this was the early to mid-2000s. It was exactly the time where, you know, post, you know, post-Yugoslav nations, and especially Serbia and Croatia then, were, you know, under so much pressure from the, you know, the international community, you know, including my country at the time, to, you know, be as, you know, more radically transparent about the past, you know, than they'd ever expected to be before, you know, to the point that, you know, both the, you know, both the UK and the Netherlands, you know, pressed this agenda on Croatia in the name of, you know, EU conditionality, for instance. And, okay, you know, well, if we, you know, regardless of the, the rights and wrongs of, you know, that particular debate, um, you know, 
if we are going to expect that kind of transparency from any other country, you know, exactly the same thing needs to be happening here. Um, and, you know, it was certainly not at that point. Um, beginning to happen in maybe around, well, I mean, you know, I do not want to not be, sorry, I'm making it sound as if, you know, people like Stuart Hall have never been right at all, and that's not what I mean. Um, but, you know, in terms of, you know, bigger, you know, bigger public narratives that the whole of society is supposed to be engaging with, um, you know, maybe it was just beginning to be pushed at in, you know, 2007, when you had the bicentenary of the, you know, the bicentenary of the abolition of the slave trade in the British Empire, and, you know, a lot of, you know, in terms of the, the mainstream narratives, the, the celebration of that as, you know, a, a major British historical and cultural achievement, and, you know, all of the all of the more critical things that can then be said about, you know, that not actually being the whole story and what else gets silenced, you know, when all we do is cele celebrate abolition. And, you know, that's been a, you know, a you know, it's been a growing conversation in the in the heritage sector, for instance, ever since, um, you know, among, you know, historians of slavery and abolition, you know, some direct colleagues of mine among them. And, you know, now since well, I mean, you know, in you know, in public perhaps, you know, we've seen we've seen it more and more since the, you know, the transnational Black Lives Matter mobilization in 2020. But you know, already in higher education, if you go back to, you know, 2013, 2014, um, you know, this is where you had, you know, students and staff primarily of colour initially, you know, organizing around a, you know, an agenda of you know, drawing attention to, you know, all the material ways in which students of colour and staff of colour were being being excluded from, you know, really full participation in, in higher education, but also, you know, the historical legacies of all the ways in which, you know, not just curriculums, but also universities as material spaces, you know, had gained, you know, large parts of the, the wealth that they had and you know, the prestige that they had through this, you know, through, through the same history of coloniality. Um, and, you know, at University College London, for instance, you know, these will be, well, why is my curriculum white? And be why isn't my Professor Black campaigns? And, you know, I talk, you know, I talk about that in this, the Yugoslav region as kind of one of, one of the points along the journey of, okay, well, how, how would I answer that? I was still teaching that, the School of Slavonic and East European Studies, where, you know, I'd been a, a postgraduate teaching assistant there during my PhD. Um, I'd gone back for a year to be um, teach what was called teaching fellow in nationalism and ethnic conflict. Um, okay, how would I respond to that? I was still there. Um, and, you know, it was a couple of years after I'd left that teaching fellow position at that point. Um, so, you know, if, you know, I'm somebody who, you know, really started out my career, you know, doing very critical studies of a, a national identity that isn't my own. And, you know, doing that in a, you know, doing that in a context where, you know, I was, in a sense, you know, I think there's, you know, there's also been some, you know, some ways in which that might be, you know, strategically useful to back up 
you know, if some, you know, somebody who who is Croatian saying exactly the same sort of things is, you know, been able to say, well, you know, I'm not just saying back to my grandfather was a partisan. You know, it's also, you know, something that somebody else coming from outside this immediate context has said. Um, but you know, there, you know, there is that perception of of objectivity that you get the same way as, you know, if I'm, if I'm talking about, you know, racism in the university sector, for instance, I'm not going to be seen as having a, a special, you know, a special interest in it because of my racial background in the UK context. Um, and, you know, it is, you know, it is not something that ought to give me any kind of advantage at all. And, you know, the, the more we talk about it, then the better. Yeah, thank you again so much for that. And I really would also like to recommend everybody to read Azra's writing on the website, The Disorder of Things, uh, where she wrote about closings and openings. And um, I don't know, I, I want to respect your time and I want to just ask both of you uh, one, two more questions. Azra, if you would like to chip in, I will put the link as well. Uh, somewhat relatedly to what Catherine was saying, the kind of openings and closings and some impossibility of translation in, in, in several instances that you lived through. Would you like to share uh, something about what you wrote there? Sure, thank you for that. Um, this is a, you know, this is a complex subject in itself is, you know, this question of positionality of a researcher um is is something that many of us are grappling with all the time and every time we think we figured it out a little bit something else some, another slippage happens but i think what i found um in that particular piece which is one of the probably rawest ones i wrote where i kind of did, really opened up <laughs> to the world um i was uh, and this was uh, during the COVID pandemic when we were all um especially vulnerable and uh, in it together but very differently um i tried to explore this space of, of positionality and the way in which somebody who is um a, a, let's say an expert on a particular uh region or in particular subject is being interpolated um, interpolated into these spaces of expertise. And oftentimes I um, I felt throughout my career, and I'm sure that's true about many, for Catherine in her own way, for me in my own way, um, that we are oftentimes seen as, okay, interpolated as an expert and then you feel that sometimes slipping into, but you're too close to it or you're too subjective, whatever this means, right? You're too close to it. I was told many times when I, um, by even some of my mentors, right? You're close to it, whatever that it, it is, right? Certain kind of assu uh, assumption of, you know, lack of certain kind of objectivity that um, constantly uh, kind of dances together with that kind of recognition of certain kind of professional expertise. And so for me, that's one space in which that there was a constant kind of uncertainty. And I found myself oftentimes intellectually distancing from certain topics uh, because I felt I was too close to it. And um, more, most recently, I have a piece coming out in American Anthropologist on joys of war, for example. That was something I never felt I could write about the fact that we had fun during wartime. Um, to me, that was something that I couldn't do because it goes against a certain kind of liberal understanding of horrific nature of war. War is definitely horrific, but you know, war is also about humor and war is also about finding spaces of meaning making. And I found that in nature together with my friends. So I wrote about that. So I'm, I'm starting to explore what that being close to it means and what kind of things it can open up. Um, what I wrote about was something um, primarily about these moments in which 
certain kind of identity and identification in one context becomes a space of potential opening. So um, I, I felt that being in the United States and teaching American students, my, the fact that I was white and perceived as white, um, that, that, that gave me a certain kind of space to, uh, but uh, still exotic a little bit with, uh, with, a, with an accent that was not too hard to understand, but just gave enough of exotic um, kind of feel to it. It allowed me to talk about whiteness in a way that many of my white American colleagues couldn't. And the reason was because I didn't have that history of um, racism and American, you know, slavery in the United States that, that actually caged or suffocated many conversations about race and racism in the US. I didn't have, I was not educated, I didn't grow up in that history. So I, that was one space when I, where I felt that I had um, a room to explore. Um, and that is because of also the experience of being um, being in Bosnia during the war, living under siege, being threatened, my life, you know, being threatened, and feeling in some ways inadequate. Speaking of, of you know, in terms of you can even think about ethnicity or race. I mean, I, I I think going from Bosnia to Germany or the Netherlands felt a little bit like as, as a racial product, um, uh, as a racial space as well, not only ethnic space. Um, and I mean, I don't have time to explore that here, but so that that uh, feeling of not being adequate feeling um, being part of some bottom of Balkan hierarchy, right? And then learning what it feels like, not only intellectually, but also bodily, um, helps me now talk to my students in the US about what it's like to feel that you shouldn't speak loudly because somebody might hear the way you speak or mispronounce certain words, and you might be somehow treated differently because of that differently in a negative sense. So my um, students who are not white oftentimes respond to them and say, maybe she gets it. So I feel that one opening somebody. So this is one space in which I feel I can contribute. Another one was that I feel, and I'm not the only one, the whole um, uh, issue of you explaining that you are, um, you're talking about deals with this. What can and this is related again to what can knowledge about Yugoslavia, not necessarily of Yugoslavia, from Yugoslavia, just about former Yugoslavia, can tell us about the world in general. Why is there such a disbelief in the United States and Western Europe that we can really learn about nationalism, racism, um, and um, you know political um, uh, uncertainties from from the Balkans, right? So we were we were in that piece. We were trying to create openings for um, those Americans, in my case, American students who are taking my class in the Balkans and couldn't understand how can Yugoslavia collapse, right? How, how could that happen? If people were really, were they really, were they really nice to each other? Were they pretending? Like, how can it collapse? And then I used the moment in um, American political history after Trump was, uh, the former President Trump was elected to try to make my students understand how societies can fall apart and how Yugoslav experience can help us understand the US today. And that was an opening, right? They saw for the first time after um, the election in the US, United States 2016, that was the only, the first group of my students ever. And I've been teaching this class in the Balkans for a long time, that this, these students could understand how society, how people start mis, mis, um, trusting each other, how they, they were starting to get polarized, that no one knew what the other one was really thinking. And this kind of uncertainty 
made one student in the Balkans class exclaim, now I think I understand how Yugoslavia could collapse. So that was another opening, raw, uncertain, but an opening. So I looked at these moments in which openings happened on, on spaces in which translation was possible and then spaces in which, for example, in, um, being interpolated into an expertise conference or discussion at the end uh, uh, required, it was an invited voice but then there was a request to also interpolate oneself as a subjective person from the Balkans at the same time. And that was really, there was no, there is no way for an opening. That was a closure, right? You could not be really trusted. Okay, you came as an expert. However, now I hear you speak. Now I know what you're saying. Um, okay, that, that cannot be trusted. <laughs> and that, um, that's not objective enough. So these kinds of you know, interpolation, uh, process of interpolation that's, that's um, both kind of expert, but also somebody from the region that cannot be fully trusted because they're too close to it is something that also is of, of interest to, to, um, to me and how we break away and how we mentor students to not produce these kinds of um, feelings of uh, some in inadequacy intellectual or social it's beautifully written as you say so and, and for all those who want to learn it's really it's an amazing i, I want to focus on the opening and, and the beautiful sentence where you say this statement does not suggest a shared sameness or victimhood rather it recognizes a kernel of shared experience with a radical potential and opening and that stuck with me and then i think about a lot of different things and interactions with uh, that sort of um, approach, but it takes also, it takes time maybe, or for the person you are talking to, to uh, understand the possibility of that opening as well. And it's, it's sensitive and delicate. And so I thank you for uh, putting that out there. And, and Last question, even though I could ask you so much more, but I know that both of you are very busy um, academics and scholars. I do want uh, another thing which I fell in love with, Azra, from your scholarship is this idea of liquid love and, and the notion that it's so beautiful. Um, and, and can you tell us a little bit about Riverine citizenship in the region and how you write how the love for the river moves politics in Bihać? Well, thank you for that. That's what I'm excited especially excited about that's a project that I'm working on now and it starts with the 2015 uh, protest um, where people in Bihać um, gathered to protest against the decision of the local government to give concession uh, to build uh, to a shady kind of Russian Bosnian energy company to build a, a dam on the on the city's um, river Una and the Una River um, is, you know, it, it's very much part of um, local ontology. Like people, people uh, understand themselves in relation through and with this river. And um, when protests took, took place, um, I was there. I, I I went because I felt I had to. And um, and there were protests that happened mostly digitally, but there were some of us in person for because people were afraid to protest. And this was the first time that the local government changed its, its decision on any issue since the end of the war. And so they pulled, um, they, they uh, took away the concession they'd given to this company. 
And I realized that partially in order to understand why this was successful, we had to understand um, politicization of this particular relationship with, with the river that people in the, in the city um, have. And um, I called the people, uh, Bihać is officially kind of uh, a city in love with the river. And I wanted to understand what does it mean for the city to be in love with the river and to take that not only metaphorically, but also literally. How are you in love with the river? What kinds of histories? So right now I finished a chapter on a very unique socialist environmental organization that had membership in 97 countries in the world called the Una River Emeralds that restlessly lobbied around the world on the protection of this river during socialism. And we imagine socialism is destructive of, of nature. So, uh, so I look at these kinds of uh, two ways in which this is done in the region was through embracing modernist kind of um, scientific uh, knowledges about uh, this unique, unique nature of this river, its structure, which is very unique, it's clean, it's clear, uh, it has a unique color, it has unique sound, it has unique smell for, for local people. So all this kind of biology, chemistry, physics that's documented in knowledge that counts as objective. And then all sorts of pagan, mystical, um, kind of literary, poetic ways in which also this organization and people who live at the river relate to the river. Um, and so I, I look at how all this history of living with the river, studying the river, playing with the river, worrying about the river, crying by the river, kissing by the river, um, you know, uh, the, uh, destroying parts of the river, reclaiming that, um, how all that uh, enabled for a certain kind of political repository to happen that culminated in this river in citizenship. Um, in which people take river as a site of political imagination. So that's what I'm working on now. There's just a little bit um, of it. And I, and I think this is also unique, this form of river and citizenship, because of the way in which people lived with the river and each other through the river uh, during the war itself. So I have um, also a chapter on that, you know, joys of war with the river um, under siege. I'm going to follow that scholarship with such huge enthusiasm and excitement and I know Catherine has worked on so much and uh, amazing research on Eurosong as well we don't have time now to talk about that but I will and, and this conversation has been so intellectually stimulating and I feel again indebted um, and grateful to you again I have to repeat this because you have said time and, and one of the aims of this podcast for me is to bring these conversations out to the public with scholars from all around the world so that we stimulate in different kind of conversations. And, and so this is just like a tease, I hope, so that all of the audience, uh, listeners and viewers can both explore your work more or uh, come back here if we talk again once your new research come out. Thank you so much for everything that you shared. I hope that a lot of people will find it helpful. Is there anything that you would like to add um, at the end, Catherine, uh, before we wrap it up? Well, I've been thinking all the time we've been speaking today about a, um, I was at Daniela Maestrovich's book launch virtually yesterday. And, you know, it's an amazing book. And anyone who's been interested in what we've been talking about, you know, ought to read it. Um, but, you know, she was, she, you know, she was talking during the launch about how important it is to, you know, but each of us is speaking from a really kind of specific politics of location. And, you know, that, you know, that then informs all the conversations we can have with each other. And, you know, that is 
you know, where we, you know, where we have to start from in creating these openings as well, like you were talking about. So, you know, thank you so well, thank you so much for, for writing that in the first place. And, you know, for, you know, for bring, bringing it back into the dialogue with us today. Thank you. Azra, um, we're closer than Catherine is across the ocean. Um, thank you so much for, for the time. Is there anything you'd like to share with our uh, audience? I mean, I love the fact that Catherine said, um, you know, Daniela Mistorovic, well, let's finish on uh, inviting people to read Daniela's book. And and also to, to um, I was kind of semi-jokingly thinking uh, that, you know, Catherine, uh, this, is <laughs> um, this is what people in Mostar told me, you're ours, right? When when they tried to kind of locate me somewhere within this universe. And I just wanted, uh, want to say, regardless of our unique particular locations, um, people in people want to invite you in and that's what's amazing regardless of all these differences i think we there's there's a sense of being folded into conversation being folded into some kind of narrative being folded into a struggle into resistances a dignified one and and um you know i'm so just grateful for uh, this overlap in time with catherine who i always appreciated uh, greatly um and her work is just amazing and and to meet you today and to um you know continue this this these moments of uh struggle and and moments of openings and and in some closings too but um you know it was joy very joyful and um again uh, shout out to daniela and congratulations on her new book <laughs> well on that note to all of you in the audience, feel free to share this conversation with your friends and stay tuned for more of them from people from all around the globe. Hold tight to those you love and see you soon.